Well, thank you for being here. Father Rick is on vacation. I'm Pastor Aaron, Pastor of Discipleship here. If we've not been acquainted, I would love to do that afterwards. Um, I want to talk this morning, well, before I get to that, actually, uh, one of the things I absolutely cannot handle, I cannot stand, cannot tolerate, is watching a show or a movie and knowing something bad is about to happen. I just can't handle it. I recoil in my body. Sometimes I'll get up and I'll cross my arms and I have to walk around just to break the tension because I know this is about to happen and it's not going to go well for whoever the character is. Uh, Laura and I, we watched a show recently where a fungal pandemic decimates the planet and uh, the protagonist and a girl who might have natural immunity and might be the key to solving this problem travel across the post-apocalyptic landscape, just countless like, encounters with zombie-type creatures, and I, I can't handle it. <laughs> I love it, and I can't handle it at the same time. Uh, <laughs> maybe you know, you know that as a viewer, um, as you're watching this, maybe the mood shifts, the music goes into a minor key or something. Derek was playing, uh, Pastor Derek was playing Zelda with his daughter, and the music shifted, and she looked at him and said, Is, are the bad guys about to come? And he's like, yes, the bad, the, that's the clue. Uh, maybe it's a continuation from last week's sermon, uh, but our lectionary has served up for us this morning some challenging passages. We, this week, we are looking at the topic of sin. Let me tell you, coming up with an opening illustration for sin is not an easy task, especially an appropriate one. Um, But watching this show got me thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of a bird's eye view on our own lives to help us understand the ramifications for the decisions that we make in an effort to avoid sin? Today, I want to start with our letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The response is, heck no. By no means. Are you crazy? How can we who died to sin still live in it? As Chuck reminded us last week, it's important to look at the the particularities of a text, but we have to do it within its proper context, and perhaps Romans is the prime example of that, certainly no exception. Paul spends the first five chapters laying a magnificent groundwork for an extraordinary message of God's grace, unmerited, unearned, and acquired only by faith. The technical word, of course, for this is justification. It's a forensic sort of legal pronouncement of not guilty, and that's good news. One commentator that I read called the verses leading up to chapter 6 as a crescendo, an overwhelming crescendo of grace. I love thinking about it like that. The scope of this grace's availability and its depth of application are staggering. Paul, he's juxtaposing one man, Adam, through whom sin and death is thrust upon and infects all humanity with another one, Christ, whose obedience and sacrifice would make forgiveness and freedom and complete restoration available for anyone who would believe. Paul reminds his reader that God had given humanity a good law, but the powers of sin and death took that law and perverted it, turned it on its head, and used it to their own ends. But he reminds us that though sin abounded 
in that moment, grace abounded all the more. Which brings us back to our original question. If the abundance of sin means for us in Christ a superabundance of grace, then is it really that necessary that we make progress on our sanctification, in our being holy? In other words, why stop sinning at all if God's grace will cover it anyways? I think an unfortunate tendency that we have as good Westerners is to think of ourselves, at least our moral or ethical lives, in terms of like a ledger, like good deed, bad deed, really bad deed, not so good deed. Most people do uh, think of themselves, maybe you're included within this, uh, as mostly a good person who occasionally does some not-so-good things. And as Christians, we can be tempted to, to, to leapfrog that entire question altogether because we know that in some sense, Jesus has paid for our sins, we are forgiven, and we can get into heaven. Dallas Willard calls this, uh, with no small dose of critique, the mere record of a mental ascent, the mere record of a magical moment of a mental ascent that will open the door of heaven. And so we're left, as a result, often treating sin like a thing that we're not supposed to do simply because we're not supposed to do it. Maybe you have in your head the voice of a parent. Why, why can't I do that? Because I said so. Or maybe you are that tired parent this morning. That's not a very compelling reason, though, is it? It certainly never worked for me. It meant I want to do that thing even more now. I was very sinful. <laughs> Sometimes I still am. Uh, <laughs> okay, maybe gratitude is the right motivation to avoid sin, to overcome sin. Maybe you hear another ex exasperated parent in your ear, after all that I've done for you, this is how you repay me. <laughs> maybe once again, you're that exasperated parent. I'm getting the sense that maybe our behavior modification strategies we use as tired parents may have some far-reaching uh, unintended consequences. Okay, sure, obedience to God ought to flow from our awareness and our gratitude for what he did for us, of course. Some might even say, okay, fine, use whatever motivation you need. Whatever you want to, to stop sinning, run with that. And I'm ten tempted to agree to a point, but I want to suggest this morning that it might be important for us to, pun intended, flesh out uh, our understanding of sin a bit and allow our motiva motivations to overcome sin to come from within rather than external motivations. I lost my place. I think Paul would agree. Yeah, he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, and he said this to Timothy. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Not fear of reprisal, not fear of punishment. It might start there, but that's not the telos. That's not the end point of our life. That's not the life that God has designed for us. That's not fullness of life. So, this morning is not exhaustive. We're going to look a little bit at sin from three angles from our readings this morning and next week. So we're going to look at what sin is. Next week, we're going to look at overcoming sin. So if you want to get, you know, it's kind of a two-parter. You have to come back for part two. So what is sin? Sin is a return to captivity. Sin is running away from home, and sin is a monument to ourselves. 
Returning to captivity, the, f- the fulcrum here on which Paul is making his argument when he's talking about being set free from sin is our baptism. He writes in verses 5 and 6, if we have been united with him in a death like his, that is by faith through our baptism, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And here it is, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This enslavement to sin is the reality that the Exodus and the the Red Sea narrative is participating in. The children of Israel are rescued from slavery to Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea to a new life in service to the living God. Just as we, through the waters of our baptism, are released from the dominion of sin and brought into the kingdom of God. I think the problem that we get ourselves into is most of the time or much of the time we think of sin in terms of the individual acts that we've done. We might think of the sins that we have committed. But when you consider sin in terms of slavery, in in terms of captivity, it is so much bigger than the acts that you commit. When the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, they, they did things that were maybe properly considered slavery. They were making bricks, they were working in the fields, they were being whipped, they were, that, that would be what we think of as, the, as slaves. But they also did other things that they wanted to do at times. Maybe they baked bread, maybe they brushed their teeth, they played games, told each other stories. Are those things slavery too? Well, not exactly, but but yet every single activity that they participated in happened in the context of subjugation, in the context of a dominion over them. They were not their own. They were dehumanized, and their masters ensured that they were treated as implements to build a kingdom very much in opposition to God's kingdom. And so it was with us before we were buried with Christ in baptism. Before we were made alive to God in Christ, we may not have understood it, but we were, in fact, proponents of an alternative kingdom. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, there is no neutral ground. No neutral ground. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And look at our gospel reading this morning. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He continues, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now that passage might seem like Jesus is being pretty harsh on families. I mean, I get the whole in-laws thing, but I don't think, I'm just kidding if my in-laws ever hear this. I don't think that's what he, I don't think that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. I think Jesus is preparing his disciples, preparing, his, preparing us, that fidelity to him and fidelity to his kingdom inevitably is going to bring you into direct conflict with the people that you love, perhaps the people that are closest to you, and that the passivity is not an option. There's no Swiss neutrality in the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. If you've been made alive with Christ, if you have been given this new life, you have a new passport, a new identity, a new start, a new vocation, a new homeland. You've been moved from one kingdom into another kingdom. 
Returning to sin at this point, once he's made you your own, his own, isn't just an immoral act or a decision that you've made. It's to, it's, it's to run from the promised land of God's benevolent rule, to swim back across the Red Sea, and to throw yourself into the arms of your captors in aid of the establishment of the kingdom of death. It's a big deal. And the illusion of your sin is the illusion of your autonomy. Two point two, sin is running away from home. Has anyone ever run away from home before? <laughs> I won't say who, but one of my children ran away from home <laughs> for five minutes until he wanted a granola bar. <laughs> it was short-lived. <laughs> one of the primary ways that the Bible talks about sin, perhaps the first way, the archetypal way, is a running away from home in the Garden of Eden. There are some paradigms here that are fundamental to our understanding of sin that trace throughout the entirety of the scriptures. We grasp for what, ours, grasp for, for what wasn't ours to grab. Instead of receiving from the Lord, instead of trusting his goodness and his wisdom and provision, his timing, we decided for ourselves what was good on our own terms, on our own timing, according to our own tastes, our own desires, and we elevated ourselves to be God's equal. And as a result, we could no longer commune with God. We couldn't walk with him in the cool of the day, and he gave us up to the desires of our heart to try to be like him. That is perhaps the most profound loss that we suffered, is communion with our Father. In fact, once we ate in that fruit, we knew what we had to do. We had to hide, and we were cast out of the garden. His garden of perfection and peace and provision. And ever since that moment, everything that we've done has been to get back to communion with God. It's what we fundamentally crave. I love John uh, when he's talking about the new Jerusalem coming down in the end of the book of Revelation. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's what we need, and it's what we want most. And throughout the scriptures, we've been promised that God would do that. He's reaching forth to us. He says to, Mount, to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. He refers to himself as Emmanuel, God with us. John writes that Christ came and dwelt among us. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you even till the end of the age. Friends, yes, in Christ we find forgiveness. But as extraordinary and as unfathomable as that forgiveness is, it is only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Yes, we have been united in a death like his. Yes, we will be united in a resurrection like his. But even right now in this very moment, if you're in Christ, you are united with him in life, and his life is yours. It's not some sort of theological formula or technical description. The distance put between you and the sweetest communion with God in his garden has been closed. The gap has been closed by the cross. Paul puts it this way in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
My daughter Tegan, she just got back from her first week of camp, Bible camp, first ever away from home. It's been a big week. It's been a lot of refreshing Facebook on the camp page, looking for pictures of her and trying to analyze her facial expression, you know, make sure she's having a good time. And she had a phenomenal time. And one of the first things she said when she got home was, guess what, Dad? In my cabin, two of the girls accepted Jesus into their heart. And my heart swelled with pride for her excitement for that moment. And I pray that we never get too theologically refined to not wonder at the magnificence of that moment, the closeness of Jesus to us. And may we never forget that once he takes up residence within you, he unpacks his bags, right? I don't know if this is scripture, if I can tie this to scripture, but it's not an Airbnb. He's not just staying with you for a little while. He's in for the long haul, right? His life is not only yours, but your life is his. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I love how uh, John Ortberg writes about this. He says, God talks to us through burning bushes and braying donkeys. He sends messages through storms and rainbows and earthquakes and dreams and sometimes in a still voice. Going on, he writes, God speaks in the words of Garrison Keillor now, in ordinary things like cooking and small talk, through storytelling, making love, fishing, tending animals and sweet corn and flowers, through sports, music, books, and raising kids. All the places where the gravy soaks in and the grace shines through. It's not that these events or activities are uniquely holy events but that through the life of Christ coursing through you, God is present to you by faith, as present to you by faith as he was with Adam and Eve. Dallas Willard, he writes, he lost his mother as a small boy, and he writes, perhaps autobiographically, about a boy who similarly lost his mother, who at night would get particularly lonely and sad, and he would crawl into his father's bed um, to try to get some rest. And even then, that wasn't enough until he knew that his father's face was turned toward him. He would say, Dad, is your face turned toward me now? And his father would say, yes, you are not alone. I am with you, and my face is turned towards you. When that boy was assured of this, at last he could rest. And I pray that blessing over my children every night, that they would know that I would ask that the Lord would bless them and keep them and that his face would shine upon them. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you would know today, this morning, that his face is in fact shining upon you. His face is shining upon you. Don't turn away from it. Don't run away from him in sin. Lastly, sin is like building a monument to ourselves. Uh, Our Isaiah passage The writer writes, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Isaiah's warning was that the coming day of the Lord would be a terrible day of reckoning. Everything that people trust in aside from the living God would be destroyed 
brought down trees, mountains, fortifications, ships, money. And we hear echoes of the Tower of Babel, don't we, when we hear this. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Well, who doesn't want to be well-regarded, right? I mean, I don't think I need a statue after me. I think it's a little bit much, but I want my family and my friends to think well of me, to know that I'm a decent person and I've done all right. But sin, what sin does, asserting your wisdom over the wisdom of God is laying brick by brick in the creation, in the establishment of that monument to yourself. Of course, we're not thinking about it cognitively. You're not thinking, I'm going to make a statue of myself. But much of our sin is that autonomic response to living outside of the grace that God offers us. And the cumulative result of a life lived of this sin is the construction of that monument of your aggrandizement that will not last on the last day. I think sometimes the Lord must look at sort of our sinful activities as children building sandcastles at low tide. It doesn't matter how expansive the kingdom of sand, how magnificent the kingdom of sand is, it will not stand. In fact, if in fact we've been united with Christ in his death, and if our resurrection is only secured by his resurrection, and the grace of God is free, a free gift, then what place do we have for boasting, right? If we've been tracking along with this uh, lectionary before now, we would have come across Romans 3, where Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. For as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And no one does good. Not even one. Do you get the point? No one. So then he says, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. There's no place for it. He writes to Corinth, he says, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. That's what you can boast in. I love the way John Chrysostom, one of the early fathers of the church, a bishop in the fourth century in Constantinople, he sums it up like this. He says, get for yourselves none of the things that are on earth and do not be active in the affairs of the present life. For your life is hidden now and unseen by those who do not believe. But, your li- but the time will come when it will be seen, but now is not your time. Since you've died once for all, refuse to mind the things that are on earth. The greatness of your virtue is seen especially when you have prevailed over the arrogance of the flesh and act toward the good things of the world just as if you were dead to this life. So brothers and sisters, if in Christ I'm not a slave, what am I? I'm his family. He's my father. Christ is my brother. We are brothers and sisters, and he calls us friend. If in Christ I'm not running away, where am I? Well, I'm at home with my father, with every good thing that I need and the fullness of his unmitigated love directed towards me. 
If in Christ I'm not building a monument to myself, then what am I doing? I'm seeking his kingdom and his will be done, an everlasting monument to his beauty and his truth and his goodness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.